Well, there's the, the, a difference in perspective. It, it makes all kinds of difference in, in how we view things. There's a little cartoon. I'm going to, if you could throw it up on the screen, Luke. And so you got a guy on a desert island, on a little island, remote island, and he sees a boat and he thinks, ah, deliverance. And then go to the next slide. You get a guy on the boat saying, ah, land. So it's different, different perspective, different way of viewing things. Both think they found their, their, uh, salvation, but both are honestly in the same hopeless situation. Um, but more often, uh, if, if we can, see things from a different perspective, our whole outlook can change. And I, I just thinking of, of most of the time it helps to see things from above. We live here in Georgia. We live in the middle of a forest. And we were, we, we, uh, we were with the Flintoffs for dinner on Friday night in, in Atlanta, and we ran into uh, a couple that just moved here from California, and I could sympathize with them because they were expressing how difficult it is to find their way around here because of all the trees. And so they just cannot get a sense of direction and all the roads curve and they, they just can't figure out where they are. Well, what helps now is we have this Google Earth and we have these you know, through, the, through the Internet. We can, we can look at overhead images and we can get a sense of perspective. Oh, that's where that is and that's where I am and that's how this relates. It, it helps. It gives us, helps, keeps us oriented to what's around us. And it just, again, having that overhead view. Well, that's true in life as well. Uh, when... We can all feel kind of disoriented at ground level when our circumstances are sort of chaotic. And in the midst of troubling circumstances, we can feel confused and scared and maybe even hopeless. We just don't, we just don't know what to make, we don't know how to make sense. We feel disoriented by what's going on in our lives. And maybe you're there this morning. It's just, just a swirling mix of stuff that is your life right now and all of the stuff that's happening and, and Stuff from without, stuff from within, it just, you just feel disoriented. And at ground level, it's very, can be very scary. It can be a very hopeless feeling. But, it, but if we can, if we can see things from above, if we can see things from, from God's perspective, then that, that changes. That, 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 that we're greatly helped by that. I mean, you see this, there's examples of this in scripture. You have Joseph who was sold into slavery by his, by his brothers, and then he ends up in Potiphar's household, and he works his way up, his way up through hard work and integrity and 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 devotion, and he rises to the top, only to be taken down by Potiphar's wife because he he won't compromise morally, and and so he finds himself in this Egyptian jail, which would not be a pleasant place to be, and 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 from that ground level, it looks like God has forsaken him. But, but, but from God's perspective, if we can get above that, we see, as Joseph says from his own lips, he may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He was, he was working. He, wasn't, he hadn't abandoned him. He hadn't forsaken him. Another example from Scripture is uh, the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk, he, he has this changed perspective, and it's a turning point for this Old Testament prophet whose name we probably can't spell. Uh, but that little book, and, and you see this—you see this transition as you work through the little book of Habakkuk. And and so, as he looked over at the beginning, he looks over the people of Israel, and all he sees is is wickedness and injustice and oppression, and it's—he's just distraught over the condition of God's people. It just—it just seems like any sense of divine justice among God's people is just vanished, 
And, and it, it looks hopeless. And, and so he says, and he begins the book, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Oh, cry to, or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make, make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Why, why are you just sitting on the sidelines? You're, why aren't you doing something, God? It's just Habakkuk's complaint before the Lord. Then by faith, as the book unfolds, he, he, we could say he, he met God. And he has, he has this change of perspective. He begins to see things from above. It's like a theological drone. And so he gets above the mess that he sees all around him and he sees the bigger picture. And so the book concludes with these famous words. This is the verse we know from Habakkuk. Though a fig tree, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Everything can go wrong. Everything can disappear and go away. What does he say though? Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Does this change a perspective? Does it, does it mean that the fig tree started blossoming and the, and the, and the, and the flocks are just growing and the, and the cattle are just multiplying like crazy? No, that's not the point. It's the, it's his perspective that makes a difference. So I say this, that the perspective, it does not change our circumstances, but it changes us. It doesn't make the pain go away immediately and all of that that's causing the pain, but it does help us bear that and, and, and to, to, to handle that. And so, in the story of Lazarus' death and resurrection here in John chapter 11, we, we see this difference of perspective. We see the ground level perspective of Mary and Martha and the, and the disciples and we see this divine elevated perspective of Jesus Christ in the story. So this, is, this passage is good medicine for our troubled souls this morning. And I think many of you, we were just praying for one another before the service with the elders and uh, in the room just across the hall and praying for many of you. And we know many difficult circumstances that people in our flock are in. And I, I pray to God, I was just thinking even sitting there singing this morning, that God would use this as just kind of a balm for anxious, troubled hearts today. And so may, may the Lord be pleased to do that. We need this elevated perspective. And, and we get this elevated view by watching Jesus. We watch Him. And so see Him. Listen to Him. Observe Him here. We, we, we see the way that He loves. We see the way that He lifts the gaze of His disciples and others to the glory of God. And we see the way that He lingers and He, 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 he waits and, and for the good of His disciples to strengthen their faith. And so that's, that's kind of where we're going this morning. So first thing, to, to get this elevated perspective that we so desperately need, we need to see that Jesus loves. He loves. There are, there are some strong threads that really hold this passage together here this morning and I think you probably observed these if you were if you're just kind of taking notes you probably put a few words in the margin it would probably be this death obviously with Lazarus dying suffering death you'd see love you'd see glory and faith I think those are kind of the main threads but 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 dominant in that is this love it's it's explicit it's implicit throughout this passage 
John is is just emphasizing this close, loving relationship that Jesus has with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The sibling trio here. And so, if you know elsewhere, we, we, we know this from the Gospel of John and from other Gospel accounts, we know that Jesus spent a lot of time with this family. A lot of time in their home. They lived just outside of Jerusalem in, in Bethany, about a mile, just over a mile outside of, out of the, outside of the city of Jerusalem. So if he was in Jerusalem, often he would be spending uh, his nights at their house. And so this was a happy home. This is a love-filled home. It's a, it's a beautiful thing that we see. We, we see Martha loved Jesus, and Mary loved Jesus, and Lazarus loved Jesus, and Jesus loved them all, and they loved one another. I mean, it's just great. It's a, and John is, John is emphasizing this. It's not just a passing thing or something we're left to kind of figure out on our own. He's, he's highlighting this. That, that this, this home filled with love, it, it was for Jesus one of the most refreshing havens during his whole earthly ministry. This was like a safe harbor. When everything was, when all the violence, all the opposition outside, he would retreat to this home. And it was just the place. You, you have your versions of this. It, it may not be your home, but you go to somebody else's house and, and you know them so well and you, there's such a closeness of relationship. You can just kick off your shoes. You can, you can, can, can relax and you can be yourself, we say something like that. Well, Jesus had his version of that. Humanly speaking, he could, he could relax there with these, he loved these people, they loved him. There's nothing, it's just a side note, there's nothing more beautiful than a Christ-centered, love-filled home. Isn't there? I mean, you, you've, many of you are part of these, many of you have, Seen this, this is how every home should be. Um, there's nothing more precious and enjoyable and, and encouraging and soul satisfying than a love filled home. Now, I say that realizing that, that many of you did not grow up in that kind of home. Maybe some of you are not growing up in that kind of home right now. And, and so I'm mindful of that. I would say to all the parents here, by God's grace, this is the kind of home we need to, to build for for our family, for our children, for others, for the body of Christ even. And not perfectly, but increasingly, this kind of home. But for those of you that you hear this, and this is this foreign experience, I've maybe I've seen it or I've seen it on television, what it looks like that, or, or I've been in other people's homes, but I, I don't know of this. If, even if that's not your experience, let me say, this is the beauty of the church. This is a great thing. Is that, is that it may not be your home, but you, you can be in, in love-filled homes often. And brothers and sisters, if that's your home that's full of love, it needs to be open. Your doors need to be open. Invites need to be frequent. There needs to be lots of seats around that dinner table, and you need to be, have people in them. That's, that's the church. That's the New Testament picture of the body of Christ. is hospitality and openness and shared life together. Why? You just think, we, we kind of take it for granted. We have generations of Christians. These were first generation believers. Most of them had no believing family members. And so the church was their family. This is where they knew love and, 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 and this, this, this kind of environment. And as I'd say there's, there's those today that need that same experience. We all do. So that's a little soapbox side note there. So just do that with what you want. Take it to heart, please. But, uh, but I, I pray that we would be that kind of church. But what, what we're saying, this family is dear to our Lord. 
I mean, dear. They, he, he loves being in their home. This is his closest circle of friends. And again, John really wants us to see this. He wants to see this love. And he's stressing it. And we'll, we'll see how he stresses it. He's stressing it though because what Jesus does and says doesn't feel like love. It throws us off. And so John, I think that's why he's putting so much attention on this. Let's see, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, her sister. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now interestingly, the, 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 the event he's talking about here isn't really given to us until the next chapter. It hasn't happened yet. Remember, John's writing many years later and he's looking back and so he's kind of conflating these things. He's going to describe this in the next chapter. But he's, he's, this, this scene that we'll see in John 12, it, it just shows the kind of tender feelings that, that, that Jesus had with his family. The kind of love that was, expressions of love that were shown. Verse 3, it's more explicit. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. You go down to verse 5. John makes this very clear. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He just keeps saying it. So Jesus loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha and they love him, but... There's, but then there's something that just seems out of step with that statement that he loves them. You get in verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And the place where he was was about 20 miles away, as best we can tell. And that, and that doesn't feel like love. When someone you, you love so much is sick, you go to them. That's what you do when you love people. And we don't know what kind of illness Lazarus had. Um, if it was some kind of terminal disease, if it was some kind of infection that set in after an injury, if it was some kind of virus. We, we're not told what the illness, but it was obviously serious because he dies from it. And his decline probably wasn't very pretty. It was, it was death, not that death is ever pretty. But it, particularly in that day, there was no hospice care. There was no, not, not that kind of pain relief. So his, his, this, his decline probably involved tremendous pain. Tremendous discomfort. It would just be agony. So they're, 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 the, these sisters, they love their brother and they're watching helplessly as his health just declines and as his body is just shutting down in front of their eyes. So they get word to Jesus, you're, Lazarus, the one you love, he's ill. Jesus says, I'm staying here. I'm staying here. How's that love? But this is what I see. Lazarus' suffering, their suffering as they watch him die. It's not, it doesn't mean that Jesus does not love them. In fact, we'll see the reverse is actually true. This is what John says. Now read verses 5 and 6 again. Patrick alluded to this. Verse 5, Jesus loved Mary, or loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then the next word, so, because of, because he loved them, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now some of your translations say, 
that Mary, that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard Lazarus, that's not it. It's so. It's because. And, and so we say, how is that love? <laughs> I mean, John is going out of his way to get this whole thing set up for us. Jesus loves him. He really, really loves this family. Therefore, he does not heal Lazarus, but he lets him die. How, how do you explain that? I just say a couple statements about this under the heading that Jesus loves. First thing is that love and loss are not incompatible. They're not. In fact, they can, in God's economy, economy be complementary. They can, they can work together. If the Lord allows those He truly loves to suffer, even to the point of death, and this is what we see right here. I mean, when we lose someone to death, we, we tend to think and feel forsaken by God, not loved by Him. But that, that's not the case. John, John is kind of taking us behind the scenes. This is a, a real life case of someone whom you love who dies. And so, what is going on behind the scenes? And does, does Jesus still love Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? Of course He does. And so this is a help to us when, when we go through similar situations or other kinds of pain and suffering. Do, does Jesus still love us? For in Him, yes. This is getting above, getting off of ground level, seeing a different perspective. He loves. And so what do we do then? We can, we can like Martha and Mary, take our troubles to Christ. Take them to Him because we know He loves this is exactly what they did. They got word to Jesus, Lord, the one, he whom you love is ill. And notice, they, they don't demand anything of Jesus. They don't ask anything of Him. They just, they just lay the situation out. The one you love is sick. And they trust what He does. And they don't say, Lord, he who really loves you is sick. That was true, but they say, the Lord, the one you love is sick. God doesn't, God doesn't work and bless us in proportion to our love for Him. It's, 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 the, it's to the degree of His love for us. That's the controlling factor. He blesses us not because we're deserving, but because He loves us. And so this is how they appeal to Jesus. And, and it was Jesus' great love that moved Him to respond the way He did, which is not how we expect and how they expected, and again, it's that difference in perspective. They only saw from ground level, Jesus sees from an elevated divine view. And that brings us to another, another statement under this reality Jesus loves is we need to be careful to always interpret your suffering by God's love. Don't interpret God's love by your suffering. And we can be so inclined to do that. Uh, there, I, I, I was thinking of an example of this, and, and uh, one in our time. Johnny Erickson Tata is a great is a great example of this very thing. She she was paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident, and uh, she wrote an autobiography about eight years after that accident. So this autobiography is many years old now, um, but she she describes it this even at that time. She says this in in her autobiography: God engineered the circumstances. He used them to prove himself as well as my loyalty. Not everyone had this privilege. I felt 
there were only a few people God cared for in such a special way that he would trust them with this kind of experience. This understanding left me relaxed and comfortable as I relied on his love, exercising newly learned trust. I saw that my injury was not a tragedy, but a gift God was using to help me conform to the image of Christ. Something that would mean my ultimate satisfaction, happiness, even joy. That's, that's interpreting our circumstances, our suffering through the grid of God's love, not, not judging God's love through the, through the grid of our circumstances. That's great. That's what we need to do. And this is what, this is what John 11 helps us, is that Jesus loves. No matter what you've lost, no matter how you're suffering, no matter how intense the pain is, He loves. We need to see that. And then just one final statement along this line is that, as we see here in Christ, that the love, Howard and I were talking about this before the service, and it kind of went along with what he's preaching this morning over at Noonan. And we had a great little dialogue about how God loves us and how intimately and affectionately God loves us. But that, that love is not only emotive, emotional, but it is emotive. And so love is far more than emotion, but it's not less than that. God's love. If you know any Greek words, you probably know the two words, some of the two of the words for the, for love that are translated. And so a lot of preachers, you know, wax eloquent on this and, uh, and talk about the difference between phileo and agape, agape kind of love. And, and that's not a bad thing, but phileo is that brotherly love, Philadelphia, and agapao or agape, it's the, it's the divine, the love of God, that highest kind of love for the benefit of the other. Well, there is a distinction here that is not as easy to pick up in, in English, and so I want to draw your eyes to it. The, in verse 3, the sisters appeal to Jesus on the basis of his phileo love for Lazarus. It's this brotherly love. Now, let me just say, that the distinction is not that this is some kind of bush league love. This is just kind of like low, yeah, just kind of like, kind of like him. That's not it. This is an intense love. This brotherly love. Close, affectionate. This is, I'm saying, your dear, close friend whom you love is sick. So there's only one expected response from Jesus because they know He loves him that way and it's for Him to go and to be with Him because that's how brothers love one another. And that's the, that's, it's, an, it's a serious kind of love. But you get to verse 5. John says, Jesus loved these siblings, and he uses the word agape. It's this unstoppable, divine love, this high, wide, deep, great love that works only for the benefit of the other person, the one loved. And that's far more than our emotional kind of love. But, but I don't want you to think of it as cold, calculating, purely logical kind of love. Well, because if we see the beginning of the story and we just ended, we would say, well, it was Jesus' agape love that just made him, have him make the decision that it was better to stay back than to go. And it sounds kind of cold and calculating. I would just say, and we'll see this next week very clearly, is that Jesus, this same love takes him to the tomb of Lazarus where he goes, he just falls apart weeping. He's weeping over Lazarus over what sin has done in this world and the death that it's brought. He's just, 
He weeps. Not a controlled little tear in the eye. I mean, He weeps. He wails. And so that those who watch Jesus weep like that, they say, see how He loved Him. It was observable. So, this is the first thing. How do we get the kind of perspective that we need in the sufferings of life and in the pain and the, and in the unexpected trials and the, the, the difficult circumstances we find ourselves? How do we get that kind of perspective? We've got to remember that first that Jesus loves. Don't doubt the love of God. The, 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 the Lord is not some aloof puppeteer where He's just kind of He's just orchestrating the events of life and the suffering, even the hard things of life, but He's unaffected by it all. No, He loves you. He really loves you. He loves me. Um, and, 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 and we need to know this because I think every one of us would probably say this, that our lives have not, have not gone as they, we expected them to go. I mean, there's... There's, there's, there's a, what we saw is happening in our life and the trajectory of our life and the where we'd be at this time of life. It's probably different than the way it is. In some ways, it's probably better, and in other ways, it's probably a lot harder than you expected. You, you didn't see it coming. That's not just true as for us as individuals and as families. That's true for us as a church. I, I mean, I, I, I did not see the last year unfolding the way it has. I mean, this is hard. It's, it's disorienting. It's frightening. And, and, and yet, this, this, the, the same, uh, one, of the, one of the things that helps us, one of the things that lifts us above whatever we're going through is this, this reality. is that Christ loves us. Brothers and sisters, together as a church, He loves us. He is not against us. He has not forsaken us. He, he, he loves us. And we must trust His loving care in the midst of whatever suffering we're going through, in the mix, in the, no matter how things have changed from the way we thought they would go, we know we've got to see things from His perspective. And that's first, it's love. Second thing, second way that we kind of elevate our perspective to see things from God's perspective is, is, is what, as we observe Jesus, we see that He lifts. He lifts. He lifts the gaze of His disciples and of His sisters to to the heights of the glory of God. Because what's the first question that pops into our minds when we suffer? Why? Why? Why this? How many times have I, how, how many times have I asked this and you asked this? Why, why this? Why now? What? Why me? Why us? What, what, did I do something to deserve this? Is God, God punishing me? Is He punishing us? Why, why, God? Just say this, that we cannot, cannot always know the why of our suffering. You know this, but we, we, can't, we can't always answer that question. Very seldom can we, at least certainly can't in whole, as in, in whole we might get little parts. But Jesus, he doesn't give his sis, the sisters of Lazarus, he doesn't give the disciples uh, any specific answers to the why question of why this is happening, why Lazarus is dying, why he's got to go all the way to the grave. But what he does is he lifts their gaze from the grave to glory. That's what he's doing here. Verse 4, when Jesus heard it that Lazarus was ill, the one he loves, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, 
so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, if you're using the ESV as I am, and that's what I just read, I think this is, a, this is not the best translation of verse 4. Others get this better. The New American Standard, the NIV, they get this better. It should be something like, this illness does not end in death. That's how most translate it. Because it does lead to death. He dies. He really dies. He's, there's a funeral procession. He's in the grave for four days. He's dead. He's composing in a grave. But it doesn't end in death. The illness, what Jesus is saying, the illness, the illness didn't just serve this purpose to be the instrumental cause of death. It, that was not the purpose of the illness. The, the illness served a higher purpose. The, the very glory of God and the glory of the God's Son. That's what the illness was about. So he, so he puts this awful circumstance, this awful situation of Lazarus' deadly sickness in the, in relation to the glory of God that does not change. And, and, and we need this. He, he changes their perspective and this is a change we desperately need because our circumstances change all the time. God's glory is a fixed reality. So he, so he does this. Now, this may, I say that, and some of you are amening, and some of you are getting indigestion at this point. This is a little unsettling, if you're honest. We saw this back in John 9. Remember the man that was born blind, lived a good, lived, well, all of his life up to that point as, as, as a blind man, and what an awful life that would be to live probably into his adult years, not able to see anything, wandering, begging, could no, no livelihood. And what does Jesus say? It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, so you're saying that God allowed this man to be born blind and live many years in this awful condition so that God would receive glory through his eventual healing. Yes, I am. Don't separate this from the last statement. Is it the love? But... We gotta lift. We gotta have this elevated view. All things working for God's glory. What about, what if, what if God took a, a, a man, a husband and wife, He took, they said so they had ten children, He took all of them out. All died. And He took all of His material possessions and even took the man's health so that God could be vindicated, His name, His reputation. What would you say then? That's the story of Job. It's the story of Job in Scripture. And, and if, that, if that troubles us, what we need is we need this larger view of God. And this is, what, this is how God answers Job. And, and, and so he, he, he gives him this bigger view of himself, this, this elevated perspective. And so for several chapters at the end of Job, God is just asking these questions of Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, Job? Shall, shall a fault finder contend with Almighty God? And so Job's reply at the end is, Therefore I repent in dust and ashes. I despise myself. I just God's glory, God's purpose was far greater than any suffering or pain or loss that Job endured. That's what this is showing us. I want to read a quote. This is John Piper preached a sermon on he preached through the Gospel of John, but on this on this passage in his sermon he said this. I just think I thought it was very helpful. He says, love means giving us what we need most. And what we need most is not healing, 
but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. And what is that? The answer of John 11.4 is clear. A revelation to your soul of the glory of God. Seeing and admiring and marveling at and savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We cannot, we cannot know the why of our suffering. But we can be content that God is working all things for His glory and our eternal good. And this is, this is something we can be confident of. Now at ground level, where we live, I cannot tell you why you're going through what you're going through. And you cannot be confident in your understanding of that. It's not, it's not possible. We don't have that perspective. But God, without answering the specific why questions, He, he is gracious to lift our eyes and see the bigger picture of what God is accomplishing, God is doing. This is, this is how, he, how He helps us. This is a help to us. A couple of weeks ago, uh, many of you heard this news story. There was, I was on July 31st. Jameson and Catherine Powells, along with their three children, three-year-old Ezra, 23-month-old Violet, and two-and-a-half-month-old Calvin, they were traveling from Minneapolis, Minnesota, to Denver, Colorado, to take part in the final phase of World Venture. It's a mission organization's World Ventures training where they were about to be sent out to Japan as missionaries. They were, had tickets, were heading out just a month later. They would be heading out in just another week or so. As they were driving that, that distance, there was a tractor trailer that swerved and hit them and pushed them across the median where they collided with three other cars and all five were killed. And, and, and just... So, so we see this and we think, why, God? What, what, what a waste. Here they are. They're prepared. Their hearts are ready. Solid couple. Ready to go out and build up and encourage and train up saints and see the gospel go out to the ends of the earth. Well, just two weeks before they were killed, Jameson had a blog that he was just chronicling their preparations as many of our missionaries who've been going out have had similar kind of blogs. He said this, the thing that makes Christians, Christian missions unique is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ manifests Himself to the world through His people. Therefore, we aim to reach the unreached by establishing local visible expressions of Jesus Christ. So He's saying, this is the end, the aim, is that Christ would be manifested among the nations. That's the goal. So I, I don't know why this, why this happened. I don't know how exactly God's going to use this tragedy, tragedy, and it is that. But I'm confident that just as God can use our lives and, and, our, and our health for the furtherance of His glory among the nation and, and the manifestation of Jesus Christ and His excellence, I'm also confident that He can use our deaths to that same end. And I don't doubt that He will in this situation. Often it's in the, those darkest times of life that God's glory shines the brightest. And so this is, this is what Jesus does. He says I, He loves, and we've got to see that. 
That's part of that elevated perspective. We've got to see that he lifts. He lifts our eyes to this greater purpose of God. His glory. That is all-encompassing. This is why you need to be here this fall on Sunday nights as we work through this series on, on awe that the video and the Eric was alluding to earlier. We, we've got we to be in, in just captured by the glory of God because it affects everything. It affects everything. So, third, finally... Third thing we need to see about Christ and is, is, is to get this right perspective that we so desperately need is that Jesus lingers. He lingers. So his obsession with the glory of God and his own glory, his tremendous love for his own, his, his desire to grow and intensify the faith of his followers, it leads him to do what? To wait. <laughs> to wait. Just sit back. We expect Scripture to say that because Jesus loved Lazarus, verse 6, when, when, he, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he, he went and he found a horse and he rode as fast as he could to Bethany to be with him and his sisters. That's what we kind of expect. That's how we think love should work. We're used to critical illnesses being kind of signals for immediate action. Call 911. We've got sirens, we've got flashing lights, get to the hospital immediately, that kind of thing. And here Jesus just waits and waits. He loved them so much that he stayed away. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, we read that and we're, we're okay, we're comfortable. But listen, I mean, you, delays like this are hard. They're hard. They are a gut check for the follower of Christ. They're hard to reconcile with God's love. Because they don't feel like it. It's delayed, delayed justice. You ever had that sense? You know that, you know that justice will come, but oh, why is it so long? It's this delayed, just prolonged sickness. This... this this desire that's a good desire, but it's unfulfilled, and it just, just goes on and on and on. And it hurts. At ground level, there are times when it's very difficult to keep believing in the goodness of God because of those kinds of delays. But John 11, again, he raises our perspective higher. And no matter how it looks, how it feels, those, quote, inexplicable delays are delays of love and it's not just true for in this context it's true for all of us if the lord is truly sovereign then every delay is it's it's, it's, it's an expression of his love he has a purpose for it but you think of mary and martha they send word to jesus what do they expect jesus to race back to bethany i don't doubt that as they're watching their brother suffer they're probably going out every hour Looking, he's coming, where is he, what happened? And then his brother slips away, dies. So they're thinking still he's going to show up and he'll be there to comfort and mourn with them. Day passes, another day, still no Jesus. Another day, does he not care? What, where is he? We've funeral, third day, procession. Mourners from the village line the streets, this kind of like gauntlet of grief 
as the sisters without Jesus, the one that was so close to their family, their closest family friend, he's not there. They're going having to go through this with, without him walking through, burying his brothers, weeping, wailing, putting, preparing his body, laying in the tomb. Where is he? It's delay. Verse, verse 21, and we'll, we'll get here next week, so uh, we'll talk more about this. But when Jesus does arrive, both of his sisters ask him the same question. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's not a question, it's a statement. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we'll, again, we'll talk more about this next week, but I, I don't think that's whining. I don't think that's it. I think this is an, this is an expression. It's a struggle. It shows a struggle for them because they do. If Jesus hadn't delayed, they are confident that Jesus had the power to heal him. There's this trust and confidence in Jesus, but it's a struggle. But, but what we're seeing here, what Jesus, allow, what, what John allows us to see is he, we get to behold Christ and our gaze gets lifted. We, we get to see that this delay has a purpose. One they couldn't see yet. We get privileged. They didn't have John 11 when they were living this. And so they weren't privileged like we are. So this delay, it was, it was an expression of Jesus' love. It was, it was so that they'd see more of God's glory in Christ. It was so that their faith, confidence in Jesus would be strengthened. This is part of it. But just say this, because we have to remember this. God's delays are, are never because He's indifferent or aloof. That's not how God is. It's not because He's too busy with more important matters. It's not why God is slow as we count slowness. Don't ever, don't ever doubt His love, even though you don't understand the reason for His delays. This is Peter exhorts believers to cast all their cares, all their anxieties on the Lord. And this is how they often come up in your life and in mine. We, 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 we have, we're anxious because things aren't happening like we thought they would or in the time that we thought they would. We're anxious. We have these cares, these burdens. He says, cast them upon the Lord. And then he reassures us because he cares for you. He cares. So verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? This decision of Jesus to go back now, it sounds completely idiotic to the ears of the disciples. Like, what are you talking about? There's a bounty on your head, Jesus. They're just waiting on you to kill you. And you want to go back. And you think about this, they, they were driven out of Judea, out of Jerusalem and out of Judea because of this violent opposition to Christ. They were ready to kill Him. Jesus slipped away, not because He was afraid of them, because it wasn't His time. For the disciples, they were afraid, and so they were none too pleased to get out of Dodge. And so, so, so here they are, they've crossed the Jordan River, and what do they have? They have relief. Oh. They're received warmly by those disciples of John the Baptist. And, and the text, we saw this last week, John 10 ended. Many people believed in Jesus there. So this warm reception. There's this fruitfulness in the ministry. And things are going so well. And it's safe there. And they're satisfied. And there's, they're fulfilled in what they're doing. And everything's just going so well. It's a fulfilling ministry. That's not a, you've had those times. Man, this is good. I am satisfied with what, how God is using me right here 
what I'm doing. And that's a good place to be. But then Jesus says, let's leave this. Let's go back. Let's go back. And it just baffles the disciples. Why? Why would, you, why would we do that? Let's just say there are times when God does things and directs us in ways we just, we just don't understand. We, we don't understand. We can't figure them out. They're beyond us. Um, there are times when we feel safe and secure and satisfied with the course of our lives and God just sends us elsewhere through some circumstance, through providence, through leading, but we, He sends us elsewhere. And we don't always know why. And so, so there, are, there are these dimensions of, of, of problems and to which 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 he sees, but we can't even begin to to understand or imagine. There, are, in every situation of life, and whatever you're going through, there are possibilities, there are opportunities, there are factors that God knows that you can't even can't even imagine. And and so we have to trust him. We have to be content, saying, God, my my, your thoughts are not my thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, and I trust you. Verse nine. Jesus answered the twelve, and as they're expressing their protests to the Lord, are, are there not twelve hours in the day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now let me just break this down. He's, he's quoting a familiar, familiar proverb that everybody would understood. But it doesn't make as much sense to us because we work night and day in this, in this culture. But most people of the world, for most Generations of human history. They, they, day is for work, night's for rest. Twelve hours for work, twelve hours for rest. And, and so Jesus is saying, this is his point, there's, there's always enough time to do what God has planned for you to do. And there's always enough time. There isn't more than that, but there is at least that much. And so it's, it, it isn't time for me to die yet. The darkness isn't quite here. The 12 hours are not quite up, but they will be soon. And so let's go. It's not, it's not time, but it's coming. It's on the way, but it's not here yet. He knows, he's just, he knows he's going to die at Passover, which is just probably a couple of weeks away at this point. But it's not time yet. And so we've seen this tension with, with Jesus as we've been, as we're kind of getting close to the end of John. I was thinking how to illustrate this, but this may be kind of a crude illustration, so I hope it's not. But, uh, just thinking of grilling a steak. And so you got, you got that fine bone in ribeye, big old thick ribeye steak. See, some of you are going to start salivating. So you got the grill, you got it blazing hot, and it's just ready to sear that meat. So you throw it on there, and you hear that sizzle and that searing. But then that fat starts to melt, and it drips down on the flame, and it flares up. And so it's too hot, so you move it out of the flame for a few seconds. And then you bring it back over, and, and, and after a couple minutes, you flip that baby over, and it does it again. So you move it out, you move it back, and until you can get to that perfect done temperature, which you don't figure out by cutting it open, please. That's just a, just don't do that with steak, please. You're just killing it. Sorry. Side note. Unnecessary. But this, this is kind of what Jesus is doing at the end of his life here. He, he, he goes to Jerusalem at some of these feasts, and it flares up, and the opposition's great, so he retreats, and he pulls back, and he goes across to the Jordan comes back into Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, raises Lazarus from the dead, and we're going to see 
pulls back. He gets out of the gets out of the heat. He's going to go back to Jerusalem, and then it's done. It's done. He's going to say ultimately the words: "It's finished. It's finished." So he's he's in control. He's aware of the timetable, and he's working to that end. And so he. He's, he understands his disciples don't get it, of course. They're, they think this decision is, is ridiculous and unnecessary. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. They, they, Jesus' veiled words kind of throw them off. They think he's just sick. But then Jesus just kind of puts the figures of speech aside and he puts the cookies on the bottom shelf for him. Jesus, now verse 13, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, so Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Lazarus, the one I love, has died. I'm glad. I'm glad I wasn't there. He's not glad Lazarus is dead, but he's glad for their sake, so that they might believe. Now he's talking to people who've already believed in him. Minus Judas, but they're, they're believers already, but they need to believe. They, 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 their eternal destiny is settled, but they still, they still lack faith in Christ. I mean, this is how we began months and months ago, when one of the ways, just as I was preparing for the study, and I've was praying for you then and I continue to pray for myself and for you now is that as we work our way through the gospel of John that our faith in Christ will grow more and more and more that every single week we're in here together and studying through this book that our, our confidence in Jesus just grows deeper and more believe him more and for those who are without Christ I pray that you'll believe in him for eternal life for the first time Saving faith, it's, 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 it's you either have it or you don't have it. And so if you don't have it, I pray that you believe Christ as your Savior and know eternal life. But for the, if you are in Christ, I, I pray you'll believe more. John, John makes it clear, and this is one of the places that faith isn't static. It, it's something that grows, it enlarges, it, it intensifies. And that's Jesus' design with His disciples here. It needs to be strengthened. Our confidence in Christ should be more today than it was yesterday, and more tomorrow than it was today. And so, so this is what discipleship is. It's trusting in Jesus more and more today than I did yesterday. That's, that's what it means to follow Christ. And so Jesus gives us these signs. This is the whole purpose of the book. Not, not just so that we'll be amazed and say, wow, that's cool. Raised a guy from the dead and healed a man who's been born blind. He, that's not it. He does that so that we'll believe. He records these for us so that we'll believe more in Christ. We'll just, we'll just lay hold of Him and trust Him in whatever we go through in life. And I, again, I pray for our church that we will believe more and more deeply. We need confidence, faith in Him to grow. Well, finally, Thomas chimes in, verse 16. So Thomas, talked about faith, here we are doubting Thomas. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with Him. <laughs> Mr. Sunshine. <laughs> He's always looking on the bright side. He's offering a little bit of encouragement to the other disciples. Let's, let's just go and prepare for Lazarus' funeral and our own. On the Eeyore. I mean, there's great devotion. I'm ready. 
He wasn't ready because when Christ did die, he fled like the others. But it's great devotion, but it's great despondency at the same time. It's kind of gloomy, weak faith, but strong love. <laughs> he believed. He believed that Jesus was the Son of God, but there was more believing for Thomas to do. He needed to believe more deeply. And we can see ourselves in him, I think, if we're honest. So I just this is the point. Jesus delays. They're designed to intensify our faith in him. This was, this was the point. And uh, we'll see again, even next week, how this really works out. But he, he stretches, he enlarges, and he deepens our faith through suffering. Well, by the time Jesus did arrive in Bethany, and we'll see this next week, it was the fourth day of, after Lazarus had already died. It was, the day, it, was, it was the day when the ritual of mourning, and there was this whole sequence of mourning rituals that took place after somebody died. But this was, this was kind of the culmination, the, 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 the highest point of mourning was on the fourth day. People weeping, wailing for Lazarus. There was a superstition that for three days after death, the spirit of the person kind of hovered above the body just perchance that he could enter back in and the body could be resuscitated. But after on the fourth day, that chance was gone. And so I think this is part of Jesus' delay here. The body is decaying rapidly at this point. And they mention how, how awful it smells. There's no hope. This is how they see it. But what do we see? It's, it's, all a, it's all a setup. <laughs> it's all a setup. This is, this is Jesus' design. Not the setup of, again, a cruel puppet, puppet master. Setup of a loving Lord. And it gets to this point, verse 23. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, This is a great profession of faith here. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Let's pray. I pray that if there's anyone here who does not yet believe this in the sense that they have not trusted in Jesus Christ as the resurrection and the life, the one who died for sin and was raised on the third day, haven't received that gift of eternal life, that they would do that today. And for all of us, though, even those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that we will believe that more. Strengthen our faith, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.